from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Michael Nyland of the History Department discussing her book, The Chinese Pleasure Book. She is joined by Hans Sluga of the Philosophy Department. Well, thank everybody, uh, everybody for being here uh, today. So I thought the best uh, way to introduce this would be not for me to begin with asking some questions or making some comments, but to invite uh, Michael to read to us two pages, the first page and the last page of her introduction. I think they will serve very well to set a stage for our conversation. Please. OK. Page 17. Thank you. If you, if, you, if you have forgotten. <laughs> I have forgotten. I haven't actually opened the book um, since um, the copies came. Um, that's because the first book I ever wrote, I opened the book and I found a typo on the first page. I looked at Okay, so um, this book traces the evolution of pleasure theories in early China over the course of a millennium and a half from the 4th century BCE to the 11th century CE. To signify acts of pleasure-seeking, pleasure-taking, and imparting pleasure, a wide range of thinkers during that time deployed a single graph, le, freely borrowing from one another, sometimes to differing ends, but often with the same goal of arriving at the most versatile model of the human condition. Undergirding their rhetoric was always the dual presumption that pleasure matters a great deal to most people, and how people seek, take, and give pleasure is the truest test of their character. Why take pleasure as my chosen subject? At first, it was simply because sinologists for so long sidestepped the topic and more recently because serious consideration of pleasure in academia has re-entered the realm of ethical and aesthetic theory, also the histories of early modern Europe. Chiefly, however, it's because the steady contemplation of pleasure, not short-term delight or kindred concepts, invites attention to distinctive aspects of Chinese culture as well as to notions common to Chinese and non-Chinese traditions. Consider the cultural relativity of our division and conceptualization of what we deem the inner states. In German, for example, there are many words approaching pleasure. Die Freude, die Lust, die Vernun, I'm going to screw that up, die Vernunen, das Behagen, and so on. Yet none capture the valences of the Chinese term le. Equally curious and no less significant is the Chinese opposition of pleasure to insecurity rather than to pain, its classic antonym within mainstream Western traditions. The verbal use of le, to take or derive pleasure in, in the classical literature in Chinese takes but a very few objects almost always those that promise deeper satisfactions and return for steady, long-term commitments. Jump to the last page, uh, 31. Thank please. you. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 well, Tinghua. I'm, All the I'm, important I'm, things um, left out. <laughs> um, Hans has kindly begged me to turn to what I call the larger implications. You can tell we're friends. <laughs> a tired series of dichotomies has occupied far too much of the sinological community's attention, including inner versus outer, subjective versus objective, pragmatic versus ethical, truth versus rhetoric, nature versus culture, emotion versus reason, and mind versus body. 
What blessedly seems to have run its course among astute readers is the simplistic impact response model or a variation thereon, the sender medium percept receiver model. Unfortunately, Orientalists and self-Orientalists still cling to the gratifying notion of the Western impact on a passive receptive China, one instance of Jack Goody's theft of history. If this book, Big If, breaks new ground, it charts unfamiliar terrain via more nuanced translations of both familiar and seldom read texts that imply the deep interpenetration of fact and value, objectivity and affect. The wisdom of consulting the ancient should be evident in our more distracted contemporary age of anxiety. But I do not wish to contend for relevance. As a historian, I aspire mainly to acquire fuller evidence in the firm belief that the historian's task is to real, reveal the unpredictable contours of this polygon that we call human experience and restore to it the original silhouettes of events and ideas that have been concealed under borrowed garments. If some portion of the litany celebrated, um, celebrating categorical alterity and the clash of civilizations is jettisoned in the process, so much the better. That said, the payoffs from attending to the early Chinese sources seem huge. For example, the stipulation of the precise circumstances for pleasure giving and pleasure taking neatly obviates the naughty Anglo-American philosophical problem of how to get from is to ought. The sources are at once highly contextualized and praxis-guiding, commonsensical in the sense of designed to mirror the world that is, and regulative of human practice. And insofar as they did not hazard a host of unprovable assertions about social units or the cosmos, the early advice comes to today's readers without theoretical superfluity and entanglements. As some have argued, Bernard Williams um, of the philosophy department formerly, the ancients were in appreciably better shape than we moderns if only because they did not cordon off moral from practical considerations when deliberating. So it seems high time, past time really, to recall the unique potentials invested in the word pleasure itself. Thank you. So a few years ago, I um, happened to read a, a book on doing business in China, and it gave through various chapters lots of practical advice. And in the last chapter, it said, but of course, we also ought to think about the Chinese, these potential customers and people we are dealing with. And here is what I learned in my travels. And in this very interesting chapter, this British or American author then said a number of um, unusual things. And two really struck me. And the first one was, we have to realize that the Chinese like to laugh and that they think we Westerners are much too serious. And the second was, the Chinese are a romantic people. Now, most of us probably don't think about China, um, or first thing we would think of is romanticism or pleasure for that. I thought about this, and then I began to think about these wonderful Chinese landscape paintings, a group of people, men, poets, sitting on a mountaintop drinking wine uh, and watching the moon rise over a waterfall, and I said, what, what could be more romantic than this, right? And what is this romanticism? And the answer is, of course, a great deal of pleasure that is taken in company, in drinking, in watching this natural scene and listening to the waterfall. So pleasure is indeed an important theme in China, but it's not the concept that comes to us when we think about China today in the West, right? It's something. And so I think the important and interesting thing that I found in your book is precisely that it highlights the centrality of this notion uh, in Chinese philosophy, Chinese thinking and culture. 
What struck me, though, is that maybe the reason why both the Sinologists and we Westerners haven't paid attention to it is that in the way you lay it out, this concept is always embedded in a whole kind of multiplicity of other concepts. It never stands on its own. Uh, Western philosophy also thinks about pleasure, of course, right? But it's always in this one-dimensional and reductive manner. Um, pleasure is the only good, Jeremy Bentham, let's say. <laughs> or pleasure is the most sinful thing you can think of, and you must avoid it at all costs. Or Kant, pleasure and these feelings have no relevance at all. The only thing that matters is universal rationality, right? So it's always an either-or, either pleasure matters or it doesn't, either it matters in a positive way or in a negative way. And here we find a, a totally different way of talking, right, and thinking. Uh, we have to think about this uh, emotion in connection with this whole rich array of other things. Could you say a little more about this? I was very struck by this uh, in your discussion, for instance, of the Zhuangzi. Um, um, I, I won't go to Zhuangzi for the moment, but I'll tell you the first time that I was going, what's going on in this culture, um, was reading Mencius. Mm. And Mencius says, um, food and sex is what we all desire. And he's not saying, and, and we should condemn those things. <laughs> um, he is saying, that's where you begin with morality is the fact that you have desires. Mm. Um, and then um, what you do with those desires uh, will determine whether you lead an ethical life or not. Well, I went to convent school. I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, this is not in my background. OK, so um, and, and even in Quaker school, in high school, not in my background, OK? Um, so um, I was struck by that. Um, and then what I went to do was to look at one of the authorities on Mencius to see what he has to say about it. Um, and nothing. Okay. <laughs> so then I go, okay, well, so there's that one line. I should use a database. I should check how often Mencius actually talks about, I wasn't sure what to call it yet, but um, these kinds of uh, how we deal with desires and things like this. Well, um, it's in every single book of the Mencius. So then I began thinking, why is it not there when we think about China? Um, and luckily, I'm a historian, so I could make a tentative hypothesis why it's not there. Um, people in China... Uh, since 1840, have been trying to prove that they're modern and more Protestant than thou, okay? Because modernity hit, and modernity meant Westernization, and it also meant a lot of things dragged in um, with that, okay? But a, a very kind of Protestant um, form of Christianity, um, and I say that because the best schools in China were often from Protestant missionaries. So that was their sense of what modernity was. So I had as a working hypothesis, you know, well, we've got a kind of Protestant version of early China. Um, and um, nothing against <laughs> each to his own, but I thought, you know, wait, um, um, well, how pervasive is this um, in other books? I mean, is Mencius, because Mencius is talking to the ruler, is he simply using this as a way, in a sense, to seduce the ruler? You can have your pleasure and eat it too. Um, um, or is this really pervasive? So I went to the person usually thought of as the direct opposite of Mencius, a guy named Shunza who would be, is often called the Aristotle of China um, because he's so systematic in his thought and, and covers so many different topics. Um, so the analogy is not in expert. Um, and I thought, well, you know, uh, what does Shunza have to say about it? Well, I think there's something like 33 chapters in the Shunza, and in 27 or 28 of them, they're extremely long passages. 
that disgusts pleasure. And so I thought, what's going on? So then I looked at who was working on Schwinza. So I began to think, okay, we have a kind of deformation of the way we talk about things. Um, if all of the, what we would call classical masters, and of course I very painfully went through all the classical masters, there are a lot of them, um, um, to see, well, who's talking about what? And this word keeps coming up, le, 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 both in verbal uses and mostly in verbal uses, to take pleasure, to derive pleasure, to give pleasure. There's no difference in Chinese. Okay. Um, you would still just use the verb le. Um, and um, so I began to think, OK, so this is very interesting. And, and so I was right then asked to contribute to the feshrift of my Cambridge tutor. And I thought, well, what is more, what is better? I took so much pleasure in his classes. And we've edited books together. And you know, we, I take a lot of pleasure in that. So I thought, OK, I'm going to talk about this. Um, and I began in that essay to unpack um, what's different um, about short-term delight, which is perfectly fine. I'm into short-term delight <laughs> as well. <laughs> but short-term delight doesn't build. Okay, And if it becomes a substitute for something that can build, like friendship or music appreciation or love of reading or many, many things that can build. I shouldn't say many. Seven things can build. <laughs> but um, they would be the usual suspects if you think about what do people talk about as enduring pleasures, pleasures that can get better as you invest time and energy in them. Um, um, then you would come up with most of the objects on the list. Okay. Um, so what do you do after a bad faculty meeting? Um, I come home and lie on the floor and listen to music. <laughs> or I'll email a friend and you know, something like that. Um, so I think we could come up with these objects. Um, and I thought that's a one-off. OK, I just write this nice piece, I think, um, in honor of my professor. Um, and he liked it a lot, though he's not very interested in words like law, um, having been brought up <laughs> as a stiff upper lip Brit <laughs> who takes a cold shower every morning. I think he thought, well, you know, Michael, it's nice you said all of this, but <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? Um, but anyway, um, what I then did, uh, I was asked by a couple people in the field to what am I working on? And I said, well, I just finished working on something on pleasure. And they said, oh, no. You're not talking about pleasure. You're talking about happiness or joy. And actually, I spent quite a long time thinking how. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, happiness originally means favored by fortune. What these guys are saying is that you can be unfavored by fortune and live a rich and fulfilling life. They are holding out something that is much more difficult to achieve. Happiness is something like short-term delight. You know, I had a student who made me a wonderful Chinese New Year's card. That's really wonderful. And it maybe is a signal that um, we'll have a different relation over time, a deeper relation. But anyway, what was interesting to me was how many people told me what I was working on and um, that I wasn't. So then I began looking, and you may or may not know it, on Berkeley campus, we have a happiness project. 
And it brings in millions and millions and millions of dollars to the campus. <laughs> okay. And the premise of the project is that all people at all times have had exactly the same emotions as Americans today. And I found myself, and I don't have any problem with the happiness project, but I found myself mentally writing against the happiness project. Because if all people have exactly the same insights as we have today, then we really should quit reading. Okay? We read to find things that we haven't thought or experienced before. And I'm a reader, and I love reading, and I wasn't going to give up that easily on the notion that we should read. So, so one of the differences that you say in the conception of pleasure between East and West or China and the West is that in China, the opposite, the antonym to a pleasure is insecurity. So happiness, presume, or pleasure being presumably a form of security then, right? Um, yes. And, uh, and the text move makes that question to you is, I mean, aren't there pleasures of insecurity, the roller coaster pleasure? Um, <laughs> of course, you might say they are only temporary delights, but uh, you could also live a risky life and take pleasure in that, right? Uh, so it doesn't have, only have to be temporary and passing. Uh, so would that, how, how would these thinkers well, think one kind of the of things that I think people, I want to backtrack and then I want to get to your um, question. One of the things that people think about early China, including many modern Chinese today, is that they were all being told by the mass exactly alike. And one of the things when you are reading these masters on pleasure, the supreme pleasure is to discover what you might become. And all of these pleasures are ways to get to that pleasure. And why is that a pleasure? Because then you operate from some relatively secure place. It doesn't mean you never have doubts. It certainly doesn't mean you never experience awkwardness or you never. But you, you have a sense, this is who I am. And this is where I'm coming from when I talk or when I react. Um, and that is a profound sense of security. I'm not there yet, by the way. But um, what they are pointing us to is there's some pleasures that we take the plunge in that, that helps us, as a result, know who we are. If the plunge is disastrous or if the plunge is not. But the key thing, the only way we'll understand whether the the only way that the plunge will mean something is if we commit to the plunge. Okay. So um, I think that I was brought up to be extraordinary, hyper-careful. Okay. And I think that by reading the Chinese masters, what you learn is be a little less careful. Um, you will make mistakes. And that will teach you something <laughs> about the next plunge you take, when and how and why to take it. Um, but um, so I don't think it's whether you, I think you do plunge. And if you're taking on a lover, but even if you're taking on a friend, or even if you're taking on a new instrument to play or a new language to learn, you must plunge into it. Okay. Um, otherwise, you don't learn anything. <laughs> so what is different about Le is you make this profound commitment to the friendship. Let's say the friendship can go wrong. 
I made a profound commitment to learn the oboe. I'm a terrible oboe player. <laughs> but it's given me a much greater insight into people who are good oboe players. <laughs> when I go to a concert now and I hear certain sounds produced, boy, do I know something. So I think that's the way it is. It's something about not being so careful, but doing things that have a chance to teach you something about who you actually are. And so I was reading a passage with a student, a visitor here, a pre-doctoral candidate this morning, and it was about plunging in, <laughs> leaping in um, to the experience. And it's set of four friends in the Zhuangzi. And the four friends look at each other. And who can say, um, it, one of them says, who can go in arms with me to learn how to function alone? Okay. I'm doing the translation very badly. It would take me a long time to polish it. But so it's about locating the people and the experiences that will allow you to live life with some vitality. So when we read the Analects, I mean, the most striking feature is certainly this insistence on the need to observe the rites and to look the tradition, right? Uh, and that seems to give a very different focus from a concern with pleasure. So what's the connection between yeah. ritual, tradition, and pleasure? That's a yeah. huge yeah. question. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, yeah. um, <coughs> but I'm a a student, and I was a friend of Herbert Fingeret, okay? And what Herbert Fingeret told us, and it was a revelation at the time, is that the rites are not about rote, repetitive activity. The rites are about seeing how, in every human interaction, you can somehow get the best out of the human interaction. And that doesn't mean sometimes you don't say, I've had enough, <laughs> I'm fed up. Um, but Herbert Fingeret talked about the, the handshake is a ritual. We don't think about it. But try going to a culture, and I have done so, where you put your hand out and no one takes it. <laughs> you know something didn't happen. Some connection was not made. Some preliminary basis for contact. So um, anyway, I think we tend to think of the rites, and certainly they can become over-elaborated. Um, I was brought up on the Vogue Etiquette book of 1923. They were over-elaborated. OK. Um, 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 that's not the point. The point is that the rites are a language that you use to communicate. They give you words to say, and they give you gestures that within that culture will be read as, I grant you your dignity, grant me mine. And that's the basis on which we interact. So for me, the most moving, or one of the most moving, there is a, long pass a short passage in the Analects about dignity. And um, Confucius sums up the way he's um, advises people to act, and it is to basically uh, recognize their humanity. Um, but another really moving passage in the Analects has to do with music. And Confucius, like me, was a pretty bad musician. And so he's going to his music master, and he set him a piece to play, and he tries. And every time the music master says, you didn't get it, you didn't get it, you didn't get it. And this is done three times. And the last time he comes uh, to the music master, he says, when I play this music in my mind's eye, I have a vision of someone. And it turns out to be King Wen of Zhou, who epitomizes all um, ritual graciousness um, and humanity, humane way of dealing with other people. 
Um, and um, his music master said, well, finally you got it. This piece was composed by King Wen of Zhou, um, and you finally understood what the composer wanted you to understand. So um, I think um, also as Americans, uh, we tend to think of ritual as the opposite of enlivening. And um, the point is that you're supposed to bring to every ritual a real sense of seeing the other person. And the other person may be dead. So dead or alive, um, the way you sacrifice in China is you think of everything about the dead until they are present. And then they're there. So it's granting this um, full humanity to others as a way to get others to grant full humanity to yourself. And I think that works pretty well. OK. Let me ask one more question, and then let's open up uh, to the audience. So uh, uh, you write about lots of different kinds of pleasures. You talk about friendship. You talk about music and so on. But where's the sex in your book? <laughs> OK. Um, the reason I didn't talk a lot about sex is because I'm, if I were going to talk about sex, I wanted to do it as food and sex. This book took 18 years to write, partly because of Donald Trump. Uh, sorry, I, I did make the right gesture, George W. H. W. Bush. I said I can't write about pleasure. I'm in political depression. <laughs> so I finished this book because I'm from Kentucky and I knew Trump would be elected the summer before he was elected. That was just totally clear to me. So um, I said, well, if I'm ever going to do this, I might not be alive in eight more years. I'd be, you know, I better get this done. So um, anyway, so um, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a very minor no, topic. No, 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 no. <laughs> what was your question? <laughs> I said, where's the sex <laughs> in the book? Food and sex, so, yes. Um, I mean, there are other pleasures. Part of the uh, reason this seeing, book took a, a long time yeah. was they found a manual in China called The Classic of Eating. And I wanted to have a chapter on, we have sex manuals from Ma Wangdui, and I wanted to, there to be food and sex. I go a lot to China, and I'm tied in with the archaeological community. And finally, I said, look, you know, the book, I'd really actually like to know whether this is ever coming out. It's been reported that it's there, and is it ever going to come out? And so by a very long and circuitous path that took nearly a year and a half, I found out that to the great chagrin of everyone, this book had been dealt with by the local archaeological bureau that didn't have the right things to preserve the text, and it was now black sludge. So, so then I thought, OK, I could have sex on its own. And I have a pretty sexy picture in here um, uh, from a Chinese wedding manual um, uh, where um, these were made for modest young women um, to introduce them to the joys of um, connubial bliss. Um, and, um, but I thought, and partly it was pushback, that sex is not entirely missing, but sex is a continuum. <laughs> and so one of the editors at Zone, I had a wonderful editor, Ramona, its own. But one of the editors said, the only way the book will sell is if you talk a lot about Chinese sex. <laughs> and the sex manual says, this is all about a continuum. You don't have good sex unless you have a good relation. And, and I thought, I really can't give this editor what this editor wants. And so I did briefly say to the editors, I don't think I can produce what you want. Um, because what you really want is kinky sex in chapter one. 
um, and um, whatever that means anymore. I don't know <laughs> what it means, but, but, but really that's what he was pushing um, towards. So that, that's the reason. Okay, let's open it up to the audience here. Yes, Daniel, please. Wait, wait, you have to wait oh. for the yeah. <laughs> is this working? It, I think so. Yeah, is it working? Okay. Yes. Uh, just two comments more than questions. Uh, one uh, to um, Hans is that it's precisely the sense of security that enables a risky life. So I think so. That, that's you know I think that 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 is the answer to your. Uh, to a question, which is a kind of a, a focused paraphrase of, of what you said, Michael, but I think maybe, mm. um, you know, putting more of a, a point on it. And secondly, in, with respect to the whole um, question revolving around that, first of all, there are more than two cultures in the world. You know, I mean, uh, even I would admit no, that. The, 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 the dichotomy between, you know, China and the West is itself misleading because there are so many, right? Uh, and uh, and not all cultures are uh, yes. other than China are Protestant, um, or Greek, or Greek, uh, <laughs> because so, there's quite a bit about early Greece. Right, here. So just to, to quote a bit of Talmud. Um, <laughs> Right. Who is rich? One who is satisfied, right? Exactly. So uh, that that pulls already pulls the sense of of pleasure away from um, accumulation um, and into the kind a kind of psychic state that we might call um, security. Um, in right. So I I, I don't think it's so um, unique uh, in the sense uh, or unusual uh, to see um, satisfaction and security as um, the deepest source of, of, of pleasure. Thanks. Yes, please. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Nile. Is this working? It is. Yeah, it's truly a great pleasure to read this book. I think everyone opens it has the feeling that it's not only the content, but also the style and everything is kind of transformative. It is making you feeling pleasure in the deepest This is sense. a paid political announcement. <laughs> <laughs> My question is actually related. So I'm thinking this kind of experience is not that common, not that unique. So I'm coming to my mind. So many scholars will complain learning erudition is not making them happy, right? Montaigne of um, Goethe's Faust, right? I learn all these stuff, but in the end, I'm so wretched. And then my question is, how do you think about the relationship between learning, especially in your case, so erudite, erudition is related to pleasure and why, like Faust, learn everything but is so distressed? Um, I've, I've, I'm going to be honest. Um, I absolutely adored my mother. I had her to myself because my brother and sister are 20 years older than I am. So I was a virtual only child. And every weekend we went to the public library and she got a stack of books. She was an avid reader and I got my stack of books. Okay, and so reading for me will always be a pleasure and it doesn't much matter what kind of reading I'm doing because I think I'm a historian because I'm curious how other people have lived their lives. And so my task is to try to imagine what were they thinking when they did that? And then of course, would I do the same thing? Okay. So I think um, in many ways, I'm a very late bloomer. Um, 
in terms of maturity, precisely because I always had books to retreat to. <laughs> so when things weren't going well um, with human beings, I retreated to books. Um, but um, I think that I had three or four or five teachers for at least five. Jeffrey Lloyd wrote me this morning. He's my late teacher, um, not an official teacher, um, um, who so love what they do as a w an entry into social relations, into thinking about the world at large, um, not as a retreat but as a way, okay, um, I have this. I can then take a leap into the boundless. Um, that I think, um, at least over and over again, I can see that as a mode of conduct. And certainly Herb Fingeret was there. He was famous not only for doing Confucius the Secular as Sacred, but for writing all kinds of books on responsibility um, and um, how those relate to rules and rituals and um, all of these things. Um, you know, uh, I've just had marvelous models in front of me. Um, including these four men as teachers who couldn't care less whether I'm a woman or a man. Can we speak of arduous pleasures here? So climbing a mountain is arduous, but it may be pleasurable. Absolutely. Scholarship is a form of, or can be a form of arduous pleasure, right? I uh, think when you find the right word, Absolutely, yeah. And I was just writing some essays with graduate students, and when you find the perfect example, <laughs> and when you go, oh, wait, I never knew that before. Mm. This is so great. Some people, that will be their pleasure. And the great thing about this pleasure theory stuff is you don't have to have the same pleasures as somebody else. You don't have to say, oh, I got that. Now I'm going to get this. Okay, One or two will stand you in extremely good stead. So for me, um, um, having a one of the things you can have pleasure is having a sense of integrity. I would like to have that as a pleasure, to be able to look at myself in the mirror. But the ones that really count um, our reading and classical learning. That's what it meant at the time. Um, and um, music and friendship, and where the metaphors are all the same about attunement. Uh, the sound can't be the same. The persons can't say, I demand that you be me. But they are operating in tune. Let me say one thing. One of the chief pleasures of writing the pleasure book was there's so many words for different kinds of pleasure in Chinese. So thinking, what is the pleasure that they're talking about, um, is a really great pleasure. Um, uh, it's a pleasure of finding the most used. Um, but uh, when someone asks me what I'm doing next, my, my cheap and easy response to a lot of people is, well, we're in the age of Trump. I'm working on the negative emotions. But um, I decided, who wants to work on the negative emotions? <laughs> Life is short. So I'm writing with a student, who's a really great student, um, an essay on daring and not daring. Because those go both ways. There are things you should not dare to do. And there are things you definitely should be daring to do. And maybe don't have the guts for. Okay. So um, I think this will both have extremely positive meanings attached to it and extremely negative meanings attached to it. And I'll be the person who looks at the histories. And there'll be lots there. Um, and he will be the pe person who looks more at the more philosophical side. <laughs>
And then we exchange notes, and then we make a melange. So we are back to the risky pleasures. We're back to the risky pleasures. <laughs> I think every time you write a paper, every time you write a poem, mm. you're plunging, aren't you? <laughs> every time you had a thought that you never had before about yourself or any condition of the world, it's a bit of a plunge because it requires that you readjust everything else um, that you thought you knew. So um, anyway, I think it is about plunging. It's about being vital to the day you die. And that's a tall order. It's about learning how to be vital to the day you die, regardless of infirmity, regardless of pain, regardless of this. Yes, please. <laughs> just, just a quick question, Michael. I, I'm struck, you know, from my perspective, thinking of the Greeks uh, and the current interest in Stoicism and so on. Um, yes. Yeah, and here's Tony. Uh, <laughs> Tony Long at the other end of the room. Um, but uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, a lot of Greek philosophy, invulnerability is one of the good things of, that can come, a yes. sense of invulnerability, because you're not vulnerable to the things that people think are so bad, you're not going to take as right. bad. Um, and uh, I, I too share this thought that uh, Hans brought up of um, uh, these people that thought that love might be happiness. Well, okay, you've explained why it's not happiness, but it did sound a little bit like a kind of contentment. And it's then it, not. It's not contentment. Okay. So here's my, here's my question then. That's a great question. The thing that, the thing and that, it's not invulnerability. Right, because no, it's, but, it's, it's vulnerable. So, it's it's more make... and more open and vulnerable. Right. <laughs> yeah. But where does the, how does the vulnerability relate to the pleasure? Because yeah. there's two ways I could think of. One is that um, <coughs> one would be the vulnerability to something. I'm going to go for this pleasure. It's arduous and so on, and it could go wrong, as you said. And then the vulnerability is a kind of nimbus on the outside of the activity. No, it's all, it's no, it's. There. Or do you actually make that the center of what you? It's the center of ah, knowing. Please explain. Humans are vulnerable. We're vulnerable. We care about what other people think way too much, usually. We uh, know we're going to die. We see people we love die. We see people that we would like to have respect for act badly. We see a lot of things, okay? <laughs> Um, and so what it is, as I see it, um, and um, I'm going to get a lot of pushback from people who would prefer another vision, but over and over again, um, what they're talking about is a kind of receptivity to whatever comes down the pike. And sometimes that receptivity will mean you need to say, I need to figure out how to stop this. If it's giving me pain, it may well be giving others pain. <laughs> this is not a good situation. <laughs> um, and I need to work with the other person. We're all, uh, one thing that historians believe is we're sedimented human beings. And so you don't say, well, this person just needs to change. You somehow have to work with the sedimentation that's already there. Um, that's a very difficult thing to do with, because at the moment you're really annoyed <laughs> um, or you're really excited about something. So, but it doesn't mean not having emotions. In fact, it means being very aware of what those emotions are and then trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and so one of the big differences and why people always say Chinese philosophy is not philosophy, there are no eternals. The way Chinese grammar is set up in the classical period, it's always situated and always contingent on the situation. Okay. So um, I think for me that's a huge insight. Um, that it's enough. One of the few phrases that the Analects of Confucius and the Lao Tzu share is know what's enough. Yeah. 
And so it's enough to say, I'm having this experience, now what do I do with it? It's quite enough. Yeah, just, just follow up to John's question, you're very interested in us to, John mentioned sort of the notion of, um, the notion perhaps of serenity. Um, just on, quickly, I mean, does he, how far is consistency uh, a very relevant factor in this, in this sort of, sort of, in a way, you talked about knowing oneself right. and plunging, but you have, I mean, that plunging can't be a kind of random no, and that's why look means long-term relational pleasure that you have put a commitment into. So whether it works or not, and it could work. I mean, I could invest a lot of time in a friend, and that friend unexpectedly dies. You know, What do I do with that? Well, it's not a waste. <laughs> Um, so, uh, no, the whole point about Chinese ways of thinking is they have a notion quite different than Numa, and they have a quite different notion of how humans are to interact in the world because they're always grabbing things from the world and giving out things from the world. Now, you could try to stop that process. <laughs> you're not going to be able to, according to the Chinese way of thinking. So this is this continual flux. You are changing. You are. I, now what do you do with this? So there is a tentative notion okay. of adaptation. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we, we but have, not yes. Sorry. mindless <laughs> conformity to circumstance. Yeah. So we have, uh, unfortunately, run out of time here. And, but we, I want to thank Michael for a very pleasurable, profitable <laughs> hour. Thank you. Um, I, would, I would like to thank people who took time out from their lunch and also to the Townsend Center for, for all of this, making it possible. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.